In the early morning of February 24th, the world woke up to a full-on invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Almost 200,000 Russian forces had been congregated along the Russian-Ukrainian border under the claim of military training. Now, for some, it was a signal that an invasion was imminent. Where will it lead the world? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. All apologies to those who thought the Cold War was over, but... Here we are. While Russia has the numbers and the firepower, the Russian army is being held back by Ukraine. While Vladimir Putin is watching from the Kremlin, Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky has taken up arms with forces while still communicating with world leaders and even had Ukraine fast-tracked into the European Union. The scenes of destruction are devastating for those on the outside. NATO members have been offering assistance in the form of equipment but will not enforce a no-fly zone out of fear of escalating this conflict. Our unpublished.vote question asks you, should NATO have boots on the ground to defend Ukraine? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at how China and other nations view this conflict. As well, Putin rattled the saber about a nuclear option. But first, I'm pleased to be joined by Colin Robertson, former Canadian diplomat and vice president at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And Colin, why does Vladimir Putin feel he's in the right to invade a sovereign nation? You know, uh, you've got to go and look at an article that Putin, Putin, like many of us, was cocooned for two years because of COVID. But unlike many of us, he uh, devoted his time to reading kind of a potted version of Russian history. And he writes in this article that he published last July, 5,000 words. It's available. It, it really does give an insight into his thinking. And it's in that sense, it's quite uh, uh, troubling because you see that what he wants to do is first of all, restore the, the former Soviet Union. He regards the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And as president of Russia, he would like to restore that, the, those frontiers that existed in 1945, but it starts with Ukraine. And again, in this piece that, that Putin writes, he talks about Ukraine as being always integral to Russia, and that the that that if the one thing that he wants to accomplish is to bring Ukraine back into Mother Russia and then reunite the, the, this piece as as a vital and last a week ago two weeks ago Monday now when you saw we saw this long thing that we brought in his military council the end of which he went on a rant and he basically regurgitated a lot of what in his five thousand word article but he made this observation that. Ukraine is, was an artificial creation of, of Vladimir Lenin in 1917, and that it's been a mythology since then that Ukraine is an independent nation. Well, of course, it's a view of history that we don't share, and it's not borne out by historical fact, but it's why it's important. It's because what that's what Vladimir Putin believes. What does he and Russia have to gain by, by this invasion? Well, a very good question. Aside from a kind of a romantic uh, attachment on Putin's part, as you have seen, this this invasion has not gone off the way he thought. I, I think he went in, and, and certainly most of the Western military pundits I thought spoke to said that Putin thought this would be a 72-hour campaign, that shock and awe would, that the, the uh, Zelensky administration, which was sailing around in terms of public opinion at about 30% popularity, would simply crumble. 
and that he would be greeted in the streets by a welcoming Ukrainian public, uh, and that the West itself would do nothing because you've got a new chancellor in Germany, Macron's running for election. You've seen the challenges that the European Union has had. It's what my most would say a weak set of leaders or untested set of leaders on the part of the West, particularly the European Union. Of course, we had Brexit a few years ago, Boris Johnson. So he thought this was gonna be a walk and there'd be no resistance. Well, he was wrong on a number of counts. First of all, Zelensky has proved to be extraordinary. He's captured through use of social media. He has, uh, he, he's up there now with Churchill. You know, he spoke to the British Parliament the other day. He'll be speaking to the Canadian Parliament, or at least there's an invitation for him to talk to the Canadian Parliament. He really has captured the mood of the Ukrainian people and galvanized that resistance. That resistance that people did not think would take place and has, and has stopped the Russian military monolith, which people thought was unbeatable, in its tracks. We're now into the third week of a campaign and it has not gone well. The, the estimates now is that the Russians have already taken more casualties in this three-week campaign than the Americans took in their 10 years in Afghanistan. And uh, these zinc line coffins going home can only lead to further unhappiness in Russia. And the demonstrations that we've seen have not been in support of Putin, uh, but in a, against Putin, and that is taking place in Russia. They reckon that 50 cities now, demonstrations, and the people get all wrapped up and thrown into jail. But there's now something like 15,000 Russians in jail for demonstrating against the war. There have not been, unlike 2014, when in fact this invasion really began when Putin went in in 2014, annexed Crimea, and took the Donbass. This is now the, the sign of these two independent republics that the, the Russian Duma has recognized, but nobody else has. So this has not gone well from Putin's part. The resistance within Ukraine, his much vaunted military machine hasn't proved adequate to it. And of course, Western resolve and especially Western sanctions. The Western sanctions, the like of which we've never seen extraordinary. I guess I'd point out two things in particular, and that would be the fact that the Germans, which we weren't sure where they're going to be, they have rearmed. They're going to they're going, they, they are going to be a player. They will be the, the military power in, in Europe. And this comes with a social democratic government. Switzerland, which has been traditionally neutral, has clamped down on foreign banking for the first time in 150 years. Sweden and Finland, which have been neutral nations, are now considering membership in NATO. So instead of NATO getting weaker, NATO is stronger. Countries like Canada, of course, are gonna be paying more. And I would look in our next budget, I would, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts, Ed, that uh, uh, listening to Anita Anand and listening to the Prime Minister, as, as Boris Johnson said, the context has changed. And I think Canada will, you'll see in this next budget, we're, we're likely to be spending a lot more on defense and security because the context has changed. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, you, you brought up Switzerland and Finland and, and Sweden, a lot of big, big changes over there. Um, I, I'm wondering, how does this differ from the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait? Because this, when I first saw this with, uh, although we had a lot of hype leading up to this, uh, to me, it looked the same, like the same destruction, the same everything else. And, and of course, the world looking on in horror, but nothing really getting done. Um, do you expect no, we're going to see anything there? No, it's, it's a very good question, because this does mirror what Saddam Hussein did going into Kuwait in uh, in 1990, and of course, you remember at the time, George H.W. Bush, with full support from Brian Mulroney, Brian Mulroney went down to Kennebunkport and said, look, if you want to be successful, 
you got to go to the UN and get UN support, which George H.W. Bush did and got the Saudis, uh, the Japanese and others to pay for it and put together a multinational force which went in and pushed the Iraqis back uh, and left Saddam Hussein in place for another 10 years. The difference here, Ed, is Putin's threat right at the outset that he's prepared to use tactical nuclear weapons in the last few days. He's accused the Ukrainians and the Americans of, of uh, a conspiracy to use biochemical weapons. Uh, and most analysts, including the Americans, think that's simply he's trying to divert attention from something he's prepared to do, and indeed what the Russians have used in the campaign in Chechnya when they took Grozny, and in Syria uh, when they wiped out Aleppo, and probably in parts of uh, Libya, that he's prepared to not only use tactical nuclear weapons, which we have never seen, and which ironically, three weeks ago at the United Nations, all the members of the Security Council, including Russia, said, no, we would never use nuclear weapons uh, or chemical and biological weapons. I think that's what's deterring the, um, the, the NATO from doing exactly what you suggest, bringing in, because they certainly have the capacity to do so, and that would probably make the difference. But the es potential escalation to a nuclear confrontation is, uh, I think, weighing very heavily in uh, Western chanceries. What do you see as the breaking point for the West to get formally involved in this boots on the ground, that situation? Well, I, what I've been struck by is the, 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 the power of social media and public opinion, how we have seen a, just look across Canada. I was watching the, the Jets play the Canadians the other day, and the uh, Ukrainian men's choir in Winnipeg started off, and, and everybody in that Winnipeg stadium was standing and cheering away. The, the money that we've raised in Canada, the, the government is, which government is matching for the Red Cross relief in, in uh, Ukraine, there was a kind of sense we've had 20, 30 years now of famines and disasters, and there was a kind of sense, well, compassion fatigue has hit the West. That's not the case here in, in, uh, in what we're seeing in Ukraine. And I think it's partly because when certainly Canadians and Europeans look at Ukraine, they imagine this could be their city too. When you see these cities being attacked, and you see these people, they look just like us and the weather's just like us. We're more diverse, but they could be our own neighbors. Colin, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Colin Robertson's a former Canadian diplomat and vice president and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. While it seems the overwhelming majority of the world is against the invasion, there's a few countries watching this conflict in earnest. Elliot Tepper is a senior fellow at the Norma Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and he joins us now. And Elliot, how isolated from the rest of the world is Russia right now? When we sit in Ottawa, we feel they're totally isolated. We forget there's another side to the world. The Western, uh, the Western alliance or the democracies alliance, which includes, by the way, some Asian countries, uh, most notably moving off uh, Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan are, are very much on board on all this. But uh, we do not have uh, China and uh, India in that same position of being, we want to isolate uh, Russia, but they must pay. They have to, uh, they have to be made into pariah states. So there is not unanimity on this. But uh, one of the most striking things out of what happened, gosh, two weeks ago now, was within eight days. Within eight days, sanctions were put in place that will crush the Russian economy. 
and will make them be pariahs for much of the world and will make it dangerous for countries like India or China to do business with them or to have their companies do business with them because they might run afoul of sanctions. The creation of the new Europe, as I'm calling it, is one of the most outstanding aspects of, of this. The um, European countries have really pulled together in a way that no one, I think, anticipated, certainly not, not Mr. Putin. Um, he hoped that a divided West, a divided EU, a divided NATO would give him a free hand. And what we've seen, in fact, is increasingly, as of this morning, in fact, uh, Europe is pulling together in a way that was unprecedented in the past. There's no turning back for Putin now, is there? No, he's, he's placed his bets. He's gone all in. Now he has to figure how to proceed, given that if plan A didn't work, which was uh, blitzkrieg followed by Anschluss, you know, a very quick strike. It would take out the government. Uh, they would uh, eliminate the leader of the country. And then they would basically join Ukraine into uh, the great Slavic nation. That didn't work out because of the bravery and the tactics of the Ukrainian fighting forces. Now we're into a situation of siege, uh, terrible scenes coming out of, out of uh, Ukraine. I think we're left with the question now, how do we effectively help them, given the fact that World War III, or that is a nuclear confrontation, looms over this entire, this entire situation? Yeah, you know, a law was made of uh, Vladimir Putin being in Beijing at the Olympics and reinforcing the China-Russia relationship. How close is China watching this conflict right now? Extremely close. The February 4th, uh, Mr. Putin, who has not let anyone physically near him that we know of, he's a germaphobe, he was COVID-weary, actually left and went to China. Xi Jinping is in a similar situation. He hadn't traveled outside the country in a very long time. Uh, they had a very cordial meeting. They drafted a very long uh, document together, which did a number of things. First and foremost, it gave a back door to Russia in case sanctions would be applied. China said, no problem, we'll, we'll sign you up at advantageous terms like we did in 2014 after Crimea to a 30-year contract to take your gas and uh, your oil. We'll have to build a new line through Kazakhstan to do that, but we'll also buy your wheat. So. Uh, if you do get frozen out by the world, which has happened since then, China offered a backdoor. They also said a couple other things. One is we, um, we do not like the idea of color revolutions. That is, there's people revolutions. We do not like the idea of the population rising up and overthrowing the leaders, which is really the primary cause of Mr. Putin's concern, I think. They also said that we, um, we stand with you in, uh, in any way that we, we need to. We will work with you in space. This was a little tiny thing tossed to the side, but I thought it was interesting to take a look at. We'll build a, on Mars, on moon, on the moon, we're gonna build a, a combined uh, exploration plan, uh, module. So there's a lot in that, but the basic thing was that this was going to be an open-ended, on, on, uh, there will be no boundaries whatsoever to the partnership, said Mr. Xi Jinping. So these two autocratic rulers who are trying to become rulers for life, basically, are standing shoulder to shoulder. And China now has to wonder, OK, we placed our bets, but now the bet isn't going very well. Mm. We are a much bigger player, much bigger economy. We depend on the global economy for our prosperity and our stability. And uh, it's something I think I've talked to you about before. The major issue for Xi Jinping is the forthcoming party Congress in, I think, uh, October or so, where he wants no instability 
to get in the way of him being basically uh, anointed leader for life. So the Chinese are watching this very carefully, and there's some other reasons as well. Uh, India is also uh, sort of, whether it's not necessarily siding with Russia, but they certainly aren't denouncing it like a lot of other groups or a lot of other countries. Are, are you surprised by that, or is that because they buy so many weapons from Russia? It's almost a quintessential Indian position. There's this their traditional non-alignment. We're not against you, but we're not for you. We're not with you, but we're not uh, hostile to you. Uh, they are not willing to do uh, what other countries have done, including Canada, saying this is an invasion and uh, Russia has to pay a high, very high cost. India is not willing to do that. They do have, as you pointed out, a long traditional military relationship. Uh, they, which, uh, when they were at a different era and their evolution as a, as a power, uh, India relied on Russia to help them out. They do have that longstanding position, but they've been moving closer to the U.S., because they now have a situation with China, and now they find themselves in the odd position of siding with China, where they have border disputes, where China claims a large chunk of their territory, where they fought wars and they may fight other wars. Now they find them more or less in the same camp. I'm not sure how long India will, uh, will be able to sustain their current position, but right now it's, it's certainly not with the Western consensus or the, the democratic consensus. And remember, they are the world's largest democratic state. Yeah, you know, much was made about the creation of the uh, BRICS trade group, Brazil, Russia, Iran. Um, China. Will, will it stay with China and, and, and South, uh, South uh, Africa? Will it still stand together? Uh, BRICS was a concept, interestingly, launched by <laughs> Goldman Sachs. A writer at Goldman Sachs uh, put that paper out some years ago. It's taken on actually coherent form. They've actually, there's now a BRIC association. They meet the heads of government and the various leaders or various uh, appointees meet. Uh, so it, it has something of a life of its own. But Goldman Sachs, we have to point out, is one of those Western countries that just pulled out of Russia. So if, if Goldman Sachs is pulling out, what where does that leave BRICS? Each of the states uh, within BRICS have their own individual relationship. We've started to talk about two of them. Uh, there's more to talk about in regard to China. But the um, you know, BRICS, uh, BRICS is not going to be a a force in this uh, in this emerging situation geopolitically. Would you expect any military involvement from any other of the BRICS members? No, the uh, um, <laughs> no. <laughs> these, no. These are countries that have no reason to want to get militarily involved in any way. If we could return to China for a minute, I think there's a couple lessons they are probably drawing from this. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is, as I said, in eight days, in eight days, out of nowhere a crushing of the economy set of sanctions was put in place and Russia is being treated as a pariah. Now, these may be too long term to actually affect the conflict in Ukraine and in the immediate situation, but China will take note that that can happen. The second thing I think they will take note of, and that's one I'm not sure how they'll draw their opinion, is the West is saying, and we just heard it again this morning from Mr. Biden, uh, basically, we are going to support Ukraine in every possible way, except providing soldiers, providing um, air cover. There's not going to be a no-fly zone. There's not going to be a modified no-fly zone. But if Russia takes one inch, one centimeter of NATO space, there will be a strong supply uh, reaction. So Mr. Putin, having raised the stakes in advance in terms of a nuclear confrontation, has helped shape what we see in front of us. And we have a situation where China, of course, is a major nuclear power themselves. 
they have their eyes on Taiwan. There will be a, a reintegration under Xi Jinping in his, uh, in his own view at some point. Would he raise the issue of a nuclear threat immediately in order perhaps to enhance his position? And what about all the other states? Iran, you mentioned. Uh, what about North Korea? These are states that are going to say, ah, if you have nukes, you're safe. Mr. Putin just proved it. Elliot, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, Ed. Elliot Tapper is a professor and a senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Early on in the invasion of Ukraine and the world reacting, Putin suggested that any other nations getting involved could face consequences, quote, such as you've never seen in your entire history, insinuating nuclear weapons. Jane Bolden is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Royal Military College in Kingston, and she joins us now. And Jane, how much has the Ukrainian resistance led to Putin's comments like that? Well, I'd have to think that it has contributed to that kind of response on the part of Putin. Um, but I would also say it is that comment is probably a reaction to the strength of the response from the West. Don't think Putin fully anticipated the extent to which the West would come together and the strength of the measures the West would take in response. Do you think he's just bluffing? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I think in that early, you know, that comment, which, you know, seems miles away now, but really wasn't that long ago, was, um, was a bluff in a sense. It was it, maybe not a bluff so much as a reminder. Remember who you're dealing with here, which is another nuclear power, and trying to signal back to the West that to ramp up and get too intrusive in the conflict was to uh, bring yourself up against a Russian nuclear threat. It, it seems ironic that, you know, when we look back to 1991, when Ukraine became an independent nation, it did so by giving up its its nuclear weapons, Russia agreeing to it. And well, here we are now. I, I, I kind of wonder, do you think Putin would be quite as uh, aggressive if Ukraine had not given up those weapons? I think logically the answer has got to be no, he wouldn't be quite as aggressive. Um, it is ironic, it is sad in a way, if, the, if that's the correct answer, um, it's, it's sad on a number of levels. One is that this conflict could have been prevented in that sense, um, but also sad in the implications for that answer, which is that if that's true, it's almost an argument for more nuclear weapons in more countries, um, which is not what we want to see. Um, I think one of the things that might come from eventually from this conflict and from the sort of reawareness of the nuclear threat um, is hopefully a new examination of the role of nuclear weapons and what we do about that and how arms control might play a role and, and what we think about how many weapons and who has them. Um, because yes, coming back to the Ukraine, that's a, and not just them, um, Two other Soviet republics, former Soviet republics, also gave up nuclear weapons. Um, but even before 2014, which is when this question first came back into the discussion of like, wait, wait a minute, if Ukraine hadn't given up their weapons, would Russia really have taken Crimea in 2014? Um, I think that still might have played out. But a full-on invasion of a, of a sovereign country, had that sovereign country possessed nuclear weapons, that's a different um, kind of picture. But 
even pre-2014, that question was in the works and Ukraine didn't easily or automatically give up its um, ownership of those weapons. It was encouraged by um, Western states, including Canada, to do so on the basis of an agreement, which is now you know, obviously fallen by the wayside, um, which was security guarantees from countries, including Russia, which it then violated with the 2014 invasion. What do you think would push Vladimir Putin to use the nuclear option? Well, that's a tough question to answer. And it's also keep in mind there are different versions or different forms a nuclear option can take, like, uh, a, you know, a small scale tactical nuclear attack versus a full on, you know, more than one um, use of weapon. So there's a range. But, you know, you hate to be talking about any use of nuclear weapons at all. Like, really, the answer should be zero. Um, and that's why NATO's been positioning itself so carefully all the way along. What would it take? You know, Putin is not a leader who wants to lose anything. And um, so if he's totally backed into a corner and sees no other way out, possibly that's when he would consider those options. And, um, you know, I, I'm not a Putin specialist. People who are Putin specialists themselves can't you know, effectively exactly answer that question. But from a conflict management perspective, it is always the case that you do not want a leader to be in a situation where they, you know, the phrase people often use these days is off-ramps. You do not want them to be in a situation where they don't see an off-ramp other than one that involves using nuclear weapons. And so um, that's what we have to guard against is Putin being in a situation where he doesn't see any other option but that. You know, the West has been fairly unified in its support of Ukraine and vociferously fought. So um, I'm wondering, what's the long-term effect on global relations from this, this conflict? Like, you know, Russia's a pariah state now. Is it, you know, obviously it's gonna depend on the results of the, of the conflict, but you think the pariah state will continue for quite a, quite a while? I think so. It's not, you know, this is one of the most significant international events and wars in, you know, many, many years. And it is very much, as Biden first characterized it, a war of choice. And state leaders and other sovereign states and even um, companies who've been investing heavily in Russia over the past 20, 20, 10 and 20 years, don't forget that they aren't going to go back easily. They aren't going to go back fully. Um, and I mean that both for both sets of actors, economic and political, you know, the, their view of Russia as a state is fundamentally altered. And that will even in a outcome from this where Ukraine survives as a sovereign state at some level in some version of the short to medium term, um, Russia will remain a pariah for some time after that. Jane, I, I want to thank you for joining us uh, for this discussion. Very important. Thanks for having me. Jane Bolden is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the Royal Military College in Kingston. Our unpublished vote question asks you, should NATO have boots on the ground to defend Ukraine? Yes, no, or unsure? You can log on and vote right now 
at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guest today on the Unpublished Cafe, former Canadian diplomat Colin Robertson, Elliot Tepper of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and Jane Bolden of RMC. And I want to thank you for watching the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm at hand.